Bibles to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And it's about the quiet in the land, the rest that Asa and the people receive because of his walk with God. I'll give you a little kind of a history or background on Asa. God has never approved of the idea that the end justifies the mean. That though we end up with the results that we want, uh, many times he may not approve of the way we get there. For example, you know, hey, our, you know, we, a person, a man doesn't have a job, you know, and his family has needs and, you know, they're hungry and they need to pay the rent, but he doesn't have the income. So, you know, he, he just feels so pressured and bummed out. He goes out and he steals the money to make ends meet. Well, he made ends meet, but the way he went about it, you know, he's not, you know, is not accepted by God. So, again, God has never approved of the idea that the end justifies the mean. Because God is just and God is perfect in all of his ways. But people, as we know, are far, far from being perfect. And it's beyond our understanding how there can be a relationship between a loving, merciful, holy creator and a resisting, rebellious and unholy creature. As a king, Asa came very close to being good. Now, a lot of people call account closeness as being okay, but, you know, in the kingdom of God, close, close doesn't even matter. It doesn't even count. Either you are or you're not good, one or the other. And Paul said in Romans 3, 10 through 12, there is none righteous. He says, not one. He said, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. And he says, there is none who does good, not one. What Paul says here in these verses is that a man's whole inner self, his whole inner inner being is controlled by his, his, his sinful mind. The sin in his mind. That's what he means by none who understands. He's controlled by his heart. None who seeks after God. And he's controlled by his will. None who does good. That's to say, if measured by God's perfect righteousness, God's standard, no human being is sinless. Doesn't even come close. You know, close doesn't count. No sinner seeks after God. So God has to seek the sinner. We saw that in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. They didn't go to God to confess and look for God. Guess what happened? God went looking for Adam. Where are you, Adam? What did you do? So no sinner seeks after God. God seeks out the sinner. Man has gone astray. And God, and man has become no good to himself nor God. Now Asa traveled a long way with God. He walked a long way with God before he took a detour. His sin wasn't so much as purposely disobeying God as choosing the easy way. Understand there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. There are no easy ways. That is, that God accepts if it's not the right way. There are no shortcuts, as I said, in our walk with God. It's a long, steady walk of obedience with God. Remember, the devil took Jesus to the top of a a very high mountain, and he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, look, I will give you all that you see if you will kneel down and worship me. You see, what he was saying is, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross 
You don't have to go through all that pain and suffering to receive the kingdom. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And that's what Satan does. He always is offering us shortcuts in our walk with God. We read in Philippians 2 8 that Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God to the point where he died a criminal's death on a cross. And sometimes that may be what it takes. When Esau saw how high the odds were against him, if he went to battle with the Ethiopians, he realized, I need to depend upon God. I can't do this on my own. And following that victory, God's promise of peace based on obedience is what prompted King Asa and the people to many years of right living. But Asa was to face a tougher test. Years of bad blood between Asa and Israel's king Baasha went south. It took a turn for the worst. Baasha, who was the king of the rival northern kingdom, was building a fort. And that fort threatened both the peace and the economy of Judah. So Asa thought he saw a way out by bribing King Ben-Hadad of Syria to break his partnership with King Baasha. Now, the plan worked beautifully, but it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't God's way. So when Asa was confronted by God's prophet Hanani, Asa went ballistic. He flew into a rage. He put Hanani in jail and he took out his anger on his people. Asa rejected the correction and he re, uh, from God and he refused to admit to God that he was wrong. His greatest failure was missing what God could have done with his life if only he had been willing to be humble. Asa's pride ruined the healthiness of his reign and he stubbornly held on to his failure till the day he died. Now, does that sound familiar? Can you, can I recognize the failures in our life that have, con, that have continued to, that we have continued to justify and rationalize rather than admitting them to God and seeking His forgiveness? Again, the ends do not justify the means. This kind of belief leads to sin and failure. The stubborn refusal to admit a failure because of sin can become a big problem. Because you see, it makes you spend time justifying and rationalizing rather than learning from your mistakes, growing from your mistakes, and moving forward with God. Let's begin now in verse, uh, chapter 14 with verses 1 and 2. And it says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and he cut down the wooden images. Asa experienced 10 years of peace during his reign. Why? Because it says he did what was good and right in the eyes of his God. Now, this phrase, he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. This phrase is repeated often in Chronicles. You see, obedience to God leads to peace with God and peace with others. In the case of Judah's kings, obedience to God led to the nation's peace, just like God had promised hundreds of years earlier. Now, in our case, obedience may not always bring peace with our enemies. You know, Proverbs says there are just some people that, that no matter what you say or what you do, they, they just won't be at peace with you. So again, uh, but you know what? If you make peace with God, it, or, or, or you know, you're, if you make peace with them, 
though they won't be at peace with you, it will bring peace with God. Total peace. And so it'll bring, bring, bring peace to you because you've done what God has asked you to do. Obeying God is the first step on the road to peace. Verses 3 through 5. For he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah and the kingdom, notice, and the kingdom was quiet under him, under Asa. That is, God gave him rest because he was walking with God. Again, just attending worship services isn't enough to guarantee God's presence. Like Asa. We have to also aggressively remove anything that's offensive to God. Any sin. You see, we can't come to worship services and guarantee God's presence in our life if we have sin going on in our life. We have to aggressively remove it. The sacred pillars here in verses 3 through 5, they were stone posts that were associated with the Canaanite fertility rites. He removed them. The wooden images, they were made from live evergreen trees, which were considered to be a fertility symbol because they kept their leaves all year round. But eventually they cut poles, they cut poles and they took the place of the live trees because they could be set up anywhere, even in places where trees didn't grow. So, again, going to church more, giving more, serving more or doing more good works still won't give us rest if we haven't gotten rid of the practices, the sinful practices from our lives. Religious activity, religious activity can't make up for our sinful practices. A.W. Tozer said it would be a shock to most of us to learn just what God thinks of our breathless activity and a greater shock to many to find out the true quality of our service as God sees it. We should constantly ask God to help us remove any cause of temptation that's in our lives. So Asa's actions here resulted, his actions that we read in verses 3 through 5, they resulted in a great blessing. Look at verse 6. He goes, and he built fortified cities in Judah for the land. Notice, for the land had rest and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Notice the great blessing was there was no war. God gave him rest from the enemies around. They didn't have to think about or deal with the horrors and the heartbreak of war. They didn't have to worry about the shedding of blood and the cost. The monetary, the monetary cost of war. Not only that, the, the, the bloodshed of war. The bad feelings that are stirred up by war. Even in the hearts of those who win the war. There's no doubt that peace is one of the biggest blessings that a, that a nation can enjoy. And this was Judah's condition during the first 10 years of Asa's reign. Secondly, look at the source of blessing in verse 7. Therefore, he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us. Because we have sought the Lord, our God, we have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So the blessings of serving God was no war. They had rest. What was the source of the blessing? Verse seven says Jehovah. God blessed them. 
James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and it comes down from the Father of lights. He, it says, that is Jehovah has given us rest on every side. This means that Judah was at peace with all of their surrounding neighbors. Now, times of peace aren't just for kicking back and taking it easy. Times of rest allow us to prepare for the times of trouble still ahead. Because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. As long as we're in these bodies and in this world, we are going to have problems. We're going to have trials and tribulations. That's one of the promises of the Bible. We need to be prepared for them. And those times of rest are times that we need to prepare for future trials ahead. King Asa saw this time of peace as a good time. It says here, notice in verse 7, to build his defenses in case of future attacks. Because you see, here's the deal. The moment of attack, the moment that you're attacked, is too late sometimes to decide, what am I going to do? And it's also hard to fight against spiritual attacks unless you've prepared for them ahead of time. And you always need to remember you are in a spiritual warfare. There are times of calm during a war, during a war. There are times of calm. You know, when I was in Vietnam, there would be a couple of weeks. Maybe we'd go out, go on. There wouldn't be any rocket attacks. And then the next week there might be several. So, again, though there was a war going on, we weren't always under attack. But understand, you are in a warfare. You are going to be attacked. So while you're taking it easy, enjoying the smooth sailing, your enemy is quietly scheming. He never rests. Now, that break might just be when he's scheming and he's quietly preparing an attack against you. Don't get caught off guard and unprepared. Decisions about how to face temptations have to be made while there's rest, while you have a cool head, way before you feel the heat of temptation, before you get into the heat of battle. Build your spiritual defenses now before those temptations come through prayer, through reading the word. When Joseph was, was, you know, um, um, was enticed by Potiphar's wife, it's a great story. It shows that that. Joseph wasn't caught off guard. Listen to the story in Genesis 39, 6 through 12. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass that his master's wife, that is Potiphar's wife, it says she cast longing eyes on Joseph. She'd been checking him out for a while. And she said to Joseph one day, lie with me. It says, but he refused. And he said to her, Look, my master, her husband, he doesn't know what is with me in the house. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, he does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my to my hand. In other words, he doesn't know he's committed everything to my hand and he doesn't know everything that's under my control. He says, there's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he that is the master kept back anything from me. But you, because you are his wife. How then can I notice how he points out how can how then can I? A child of God. How can I then do this great wickedness? Notice he called it a great wickedness and sin against God. He he said, I'm going to be sinning against God. 
So it was as she spoke to Joseph, listen, day by day. He had to deal with this every day. We don't know how long, but it says day by day. Joseph, lie with me. Joseph, lie with me. But he did not heed her, it says, to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside. Notice what she had done, all this. He, has, he hasn't lied with her. He's, so this one day he sends, she's, all the servants are gone. Joseph, it's just me and you. She caught him by his garment and she said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he ran outside. Think about that. Every day he was tempted by this woman. When she first approached him and she first tempted him, he could have said to himself, man, this might be good for my, my job career. If I, you know, I, I sleep with my, my boss's wife, he won't know. You know, she'll stick up for me and she'll promote me and she'll talk good about me. And, and he could have just thought about all the things, how this may have helped his, his career there in Potiphar's house. But you see how he said, how can I? I'm a man of God. You see, he was prepared for this before it ever took place. Because, you know, for, for, for the, the situation that he was in, it, it would have been a perfect thing to fall. Nobody's around. It's just him and her. And who's going to find out? But you see, he was ready. He was prepared for this attack upon his, his person, his soul. What, about, what brought about this quietness in the land? It was Righteousness. Esau's first year of peace uh, wasn't due to Abijah's successful battles, even though winning battles is of the Lord. Uh, I'm sorry, Asia's battles, uh, Asa's battles. The peace was due to Esau and his people following after righteousness, which is a nation's best defense. It's just the best protection. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Godliness exalts a nation, but sin is a gr- disgrace to any people. Righteousness is a king's greatest and surest security. Proverbs 16, 12 says, For a throne is established by righteousness. Proverbs 25, 2 says, Take away the wicked from, the, from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. And it says, Asa and his people sought the Lord, and he, the Lord, gave them rest on every side. Israel's history shows that peace always went together with godliness and war with disobedience. My greatest time of peace is when I I know I am walking with God in godliness. My worst times is when I know I've sinned and, and I'm at war with God because of my disobedience. There's no peace. There's no happiness. There's no joy. Isaiah said in 48, 18, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. God speaking. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, God said. Judges 5, 8 says, When the people chose new gods, there was war in the gates. 2 Chronicles 12, 5 says, When they forsook God, he forsook them. And 2 Chronicles 15, 5 says, That resulted in no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. You cannot be disobedient and have peace with God. So today, the fighting spirit exists in Christians and in nations in proportion to how far they have drifted from the Spirit of God. 
You see, if Christianity doesn't do anything to control or to stop potential war in nations or in man, it's not because Christianity has failed or because God is powerless to do anything. It's because its so-called disciples don't honestly obey its teaching. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Paul said in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5, 13, Paul said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Or in other words, don't use your liberty, your freedom in Christ, as a license to sin. He said, But through love serve one another. Ephesians 5, 2, Paul said, and walk in love as Christ also have loved us and given us, given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Not only don't they obey its teachings. They don't carry out its principles. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Paul said in Romans 13, 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And James said in chapter two, verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you loved your neighbors as much as you loved yourself, you'd pamper and cater to them. Think of much about about how much we love ourselves. And what we do for ourselves. We don't we don't purposely hurt ourselves, do we? No. We love ourselves. And if we love people as that's why Jesus said that he knew. Do to them. As you would do to yourself or you'd want them to do to you. If Christianity rules in any nation or in any man, it would it would stop. It would put an end to to, to wars and to feuds. And wars of all kinds, whether they're nations or personal, they'd stop. Because you see, if you fulfilled the greatest law, which was to love others as yourself. If you just in that one, one, one commandment, loving. Everything else would be OK. Everything else would fall in line, into line, because if I love one as Christ loves me, I'm not going to hurt them. I'm not going to get angry at them. I'm not going to do anything that would ruin that relationship. So again, that's the, 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 the golden rule. Fulfilling the law of Christ. To love one another as he has loved us. If Christianity rules, if Christianity rules, it is a great opportunity for the further advancement of Christianity. But so many times, you know, the, the world looks at us and, and sometimes we're not very loving. We're not very kind. We're not very Christ-like. And besides setting an example of personal religion, loving others and living a Christian life, it's an effective way for kings to promote Christianity. Asa worked quickly and decisively and diligently to get rid of the existing idolatry that we just looked at in verses 3 through 5. We read in those verses, he destroyed the altars of the foreign gods. He removed the high places where that 
were, were those idols were, were worshipped. He broke down the sacred pillars that were dedicated to Baal. He cut down the wooden images. And from all the cities of Judah, he removed the high places and the incense altars or sun gods. The pillars or statues that were consecrated to Baal as the sun god and that were erected near or upon the altars of Baal. He got rid of all of those things as a leader. And Christian leaders everywhere should work at destroying all false forms of religion within the power of influence. And again, not going out you know, with, a, with, a, with an axe like maybe Asa knocking everything down that's you know, not godly, but through power of influence. Not by force, by, but by encouraging in, in, a, in, in all biblical ways what they believe to be the complete and only true God. It's also a great opportunity for publicizing useful laws. God's law, the value of peace to any country permits the growth of, spe- of peaceful skills. To develop business, to the spread of learning values, the growth of families, and the development of ways to help the good of a state. So Asa, in the ten years of rest, it says in verse 4, commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Now under the New Testament, under New Testament grace, it's not required for kings to command their subjects to worship and obey God. Because you see, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a duty that's already in our hearts by the gospel. And punishment is less severe if we disobey. It's also a great opportunity for obtaining safety of the kingdom. To be walking with God. Like Esau did by, by building military fortresses. It says he fortified in verse 6. That is, he fenced cities in Judah. He built walls and towers around them. He was protecting them with, with, with those things, with gates and bolts. And he surrounded himself with a well-equipped army, verse 8, 300,000 with heavy shields and spears, and from Benjamin, 280,000 carrying light bows and shields. You see, Christian states and individuals should use those times of peace like Asa did to build whatever safeguards are needed for future attacks. And you know what? It's not forbidden by the word of God. It's not forbidden by the gospel to prepare for war. And sometimes it's an effective way to secure peace. Peace through strength. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty one, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. Those are Christ's words. The lesson here is the duty of individuals and nations to avoid war and to follow peace. Verses 9 through 15. Then Zerah, then Zerah the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of, mil- of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Merishah. So Asa went out against him. And they set the troops in battle array in the valley of uh, Zephathah and Merishah. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have power or have no power. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you. And in your name, we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. 
So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover because they were broken before the Lord and his army. And they carried away very much spoil. Then they defeated all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they plundered all the cities, for there was exceedingly much spoil in them. They also attacked the livestock enclosures and carried off sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem. So Zerah, the Ethiopian, evades, invades Judah with a, with, with a million men and 300 chariots, according to verse 9, a huge army of Ethiopians and Libyans. Asa and the people of Judah showed a whole lot of courage in verses 10 through 11. Asa went out against Zerah. Now, this took a lot of boldness on Asa's part to take on a million highly disciplined troops. And he only had a little more than half that number of men who had spears and bows. But Asa's bravery had puts him in the same category of other great acts of courage, like Gideon when he went out with 300 men and humiliated the Midianites, like Jonathan and his armor bearer when they invaded the Philistines um, a fort at Michmash, and also David when he went up against Goliath. They were an example, Asa and his men, they were an example of great wisdom. Asa chose the valley of Zephatha near Marisha to deal with the enemy, and that was probably because of the advantage from the superior numbers, they would be less effective in that smaller area. He also prepared his troops in such a way to help uh, them more efficiently to resist the attack of the enemy. Probably because, again, uh, 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 the, the numbers uh, uh, would be less effective because of the, the size of the army. Uh, and by doing this, he discovered his wisdom and his common sense, both as a general and a man. You see, he knew that without God's help, there was no way he could expect to win this battle because he was so outnumbered. But he also knew it was foolish to ask for God's help while neglecting to put his troops in order. You see, in ordinary matters and in ordinary matters of religion, think, remember this, prayer cannot replace the use of everyday common sense. In other words, people say, oh, I'm praying for a job. Well, are you out looking for one? No, I'm just praying for God and praying that God will give me one. Oh, really? Yeah, we need to pray and we need to go look. Again, prayer can't replace the use of everyday common sense. The instructions that Jesus give us, has given us in our spiritual warfare in Matthew 26, 41, he said, watch and pray. He didn't just say, well, pray. He said, watch and pray. If we think that we can protect ourselves by just prayer without being watchful, we're being lazy and we're tempting God. If we're watchful but not praying, we're proud and we insult God. So either way, you know, we forfeit God's protection. These men were an example of great faith because after Asa got his troops in position, he prayed on the battlefield. See, he put them in position. He, 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 you know, he, he was orderly. He got the men placed where they needed to be. And then he prayed. He took the necessary action that he had to take. And then he prayed. 
like Moses prayed at the Red Sea, like Jehoshaphat prayed when he was invaded by Ammonites and Moabites. And it says here, and Asa cried out to the Lord, his God, and he said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you. And in your name, we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So after he did what needed to be done, placed his men in, in position, he prayed. Asa's prayer was important for two things. First of all, for its shortness and its directness. It was short and to the point, which was a result of the situation. All right, he was in dire need there, man. He, he, you know, he, was, he, he needed God's help right away. And this is an effective way for all of us to pray. You don't need a long, drawn-out prayer and a long to be in a long time of prayer. Remember when Peter was seeking? He said what? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Again, it, it, it has a, a lot to do with, with, with the situation we're in and, and, you know, and what needs to be done. Asa asked for God's help against his enemies, just like David did uh, many times before. Okay? And as Christians, we can do the same thing, especially against spiritual enemies that threaten to destroy our souls. Reasons to pray. Well, it invites those who pray to come to God with reasons. Why do I need to pray? To bring out their strong reasons. Why? And to plead with him. Asa urged Jehovah's covenant relations to him and his people. He said he called upon the relationship that he had. Lord, you know, we have a covenant with you. We're your people. Jehovah, God, you're our rest. You're our strength. That's a good reason for a Christian to pray. Not only that, a good reason to pray was the size of the enemy that was coming against them. It was much bigger than they were. Our enemy, the, the enemy of our soul, he's much bigger than we are. He's more powerful than we are. We need God to help us against our enemy, Satan. David's pleas, David's prayers were based upon the number of his adversaries. And so can we. Also, reasons to pray. The fact that the war was God's. More than Esau and the peoples. They were going out against Zerah in God's name. Just like the day David went against Goliath, he went out in his name. In his name. That is the way all of our battles should be fought. And it says, and whatever you, Paul said in, in Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all notice, in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. And when it is, when we go out and battle in his name, God is obliged to defend the honor of his name. Fourth reason why to pray. The circumstances that only God was able to help them in in that terrible crisis that had come upon them. Only God could help them. He says here, Asa said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. You see, Asa's mindset was that only Jehovah alone could help in such a lopsided battle. And that God could do it if he wanted to. And it wasn't necessary that, that, that God was on this, uh, you know, that, that uh, Asa was on the side that had the most troops. Lord, you can help us with many or with little. God could win the battles, just like Jonathan saw uh, uh, before uh, when he uh, went with many or few in 1 Samuel 14, 6. 
Same with Jonathan. God is much more than a refuge that we can run to when we're fighting a stronger enemy like the principalities and the powers of darkness that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 6. You see, to God, their, their power is nothing. And with God's power, nothing is impossible. Another reason to pray, God's honor would suffer if they were defeated. The invasion of Zerah was really a battle against God. And to allow Asa and Judah to be overthrown would be letting God uh, be overcome by a weak mortal. And thankfully, God will let this happen sometimes. That to, for us to be overcome by our enemy because it comes to, to matters of grace. Just like in the case of Jacob when he wrestled with the angel. God allowed it. But not in ordinary affairs when the interest of God in, or his kingdom would be injured by it. He will allow us to, to, to learn by it and to grow through it and to see his grace and his mercy. But he will not be allowed to over, himself to be overcome because again, it's because of his name and who he is. Asa's argument for God answering prayer was a good one. It's like the boldness of Moses when he pleaded with God on behalf of Israel. Reasons to pray. The fact that they were deliberately trusting in God. He said, help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest in you. God has promised himself never to disappoint those who trust in him. So if you're facing battles and you feel that you can't possibly win, never give up. In the face of many enemies, Asa prayed for God's help, recognizing he was powerless against such a powerful army. And the secret of victory is to first admit, hey, man, I can't do it in my own strength. This is bigger than me. And then trust God to save you. Because his power works best through those who recognize their limitations and their weakness. It's those who think they can do it all on their own who are, the great, are in the greatest danger. Because God will let you try to do it on your own. So in the end, the Ethiopians were defeated in verses 12 through 15. They were defeated on the battlefield. Jehovah defeated them in front of Asa and Judah. We see in verse 12. They were put to flight by the archers and the spearmen that opposed them. We read that the Ethiopians fled. They were chased as far as Gerar, which was a chief city of the Philistines. They were overthrown by Asa and his victorious warriors. And it says that enemy's army, it says they were broken before the Lord and before his army. Asa's army was God's army. Because you see, God was with them. And God was in it. And the blood, blood of Asa's enemies was poured out before God. Because the battle had been fought in the Lord's name. And the victory was won through the power of God. Paul said in Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. They were, they were, the enemy was so totally crushed, it says they could never recover. They disappeared from Palestine and they caused no more problems for Judah. And that's what will happen to the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. The men of Judah, they were victorious. Asa, the king, his prayer was answered, just like Moses' prayer was answered when he cried for help against the Egyptians. And the cry of the Israelites when they asked for help against their enemies. 
And when the Reubenites prayed for help against the Hagarites, and when Hezekiah prayed, he cried to the Lord against the Necherim. So you see, God hears the prayer of, of, of the church and of, of the Lord's soldiers. The soldiers' reward, I'm sorry, the soldiers' courage was rewarded. They struck a severe blow to the enemy. They struck all the cities around Gerar that probably supported the enemy. And they carried away a lot of spoil. Not only weapons and provisions that had been stored in those cities, but also cattle and sheep and camels that they found in abundance, which probably belonged to the enemy. You know, that's exactly what Jesus did. The captain of our salvation. He won an excellent victory over the principalities and the powers of darkness. And he robbed them of victory and he made them a public spectacle. And Christ's followers will also be made more than conquerors over the same enemies. And we will carry from the battlefields where they meet their enemies a lot of spiritual treasure. In closing, here's the lessons. We learn the sinfulness of the wars of aggression as the enemy you know, came against Asai, and the lawfulness of wars of defense, like Asa when he stood against them. We learn the duty of combining working with praying, watching and praying, as well as praying with working. And thirdly, the impossibility of, of achieving victory without God, or achieving victory when we're fighting against God, or of suffering defeat, when God is on your side, we will always come out more than conquerors when we are on the right side. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter, Lord. And Father, the lessons, the examples that we see here, Lord. Help us, Father, to l- glean from this chapter, Lord, to learn from it, God. To put them into practice, Father. To see, Father, that... Uh, Lord, when we're walking with you, Lord, you give us peace. Father, you give us victory. Father, you, you, you stand up for us, Lord. You go before us. You fight the battles for us, God. They're actually your battles, God. And Father, help us to learn these, these wonderful lessons, God. Lord, help us during the times of peace in our life, God, to be prepared for the battles ahead. Because they will come. They will come. Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulation. But he encourages by saying, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And through Christ, we are overcomers. If you're here tonight and... You don't seem to be getting victory in your life. You don't seem to be overcoming the obstacles and the trials that you're going through. Especially if you're not a believer. That's because you're, you're, you're on the wrong side. He is the captain of our salvation. He's the leader. And you have to be in the Lord's army. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you realize and recognize I have been fighting against God for such a long time, 
I've been on the wrong side. I thought I could do it all on my own. In my own strength, in my own wisdom. But you have found out that the obstacles are much bigger than you. They're greater than you. They're more powerful than you. And apart from Christ, the Bible says you can't do anything. You need Christ. So as we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front and I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we're going to pray together a simple prayer of faith.